For the last uh, week, in the midst of uh, normal day-to-day duties, I've been following the, the court case out of the state of Michigan. I don't know if you have also Dr. Larry Nasser. A horrifying case. A repeated sexual abuser, a doctor, the gymnast girls, some as young as seven years old, for decades, he was left unchecked by the officials of the U.S. Gymnastics Association by Michigan State University. And for the last week, the judge in this case allowed over 150 women to testify before court, although I believe there's probably hundreds, even thousands more, that didn't testify before the accused, Dr. Nassar. And over and over, for seven days, these women recounted the destruction this man brought into their lives. I don't know if you followed, but the end came when Rachel Denhollander made her statement. She was the one who brought this criminal charges to uh, the forefront of the news, and she was the last to make her statement. After recounting the abuse that she suffered at the hands of this man and many of the officials that turned a blind eye, I couldn't help but think of the book of 1 Samuel. A man many trusted, many put their lives in, was left in a position of influence and he continued to hurt and destroy young girls. And to me, it sounded a lot like chapter two where Eli's sons were left in their position to abuse women and to steal. But God would not be blind, he would not be deaf. Those that continually sin against people would suffer the consequences. If you remember in chapter two, God said to Eli, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house. And my heart sank as I heard this woman share her pain, her grief, her anger, and in the midst of the horror that she shared, she turned to reveal who she really was. She was a believer. She was a Christian. And she turned this cold, sterile courtroom in Lansing, Michigan, into an opportunity to preach. Here's what she said. Speaking to to Larry, the the man that abused her. You spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible that you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. As if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all this and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around the neck of you and thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath, eternal terror, is poured out in men like you. And should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And then she said, 
And this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. She continued, she says, I will pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you. As I listened to this, my heart leapt at these words. Rachel Denhollander knew the gospel. She applied the gospel in that courtroom. She applied the gospel to herself, to the people seated, and to the accused, Larry. Her only hope was the gospel, the good news. She knew that the only hope was God, but Rachel also knows that there is an authority that rises above any law on earth. She continued, she said, throughout this process, I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, where he says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how did I get this idea of unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? She said, Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was. And I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. And I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. She understood that there's an authority. And God is that authority, and he has defined justice. He is the standard, and he has graciously given us the standard. Larry received earthly justice that day. He was sentenced to 175 years in prison. He will never see the outside world. And I believe God is honored in that. Larry will one day stand before his maker, and justice will be served also then. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. As I watched and listened to this woman preach the gospel to my soul, I see how it applies to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Because today in this chapter, we read of Samuel preaching to the people. The same gospel that they are sinners and turned away from God to serve themselves. And yet God is there, calling them to repent. To turn away from their sin and to follow him. What we have in chapter 12 is a courtroom. And as we begin to look at the courtroom in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we need to look back at Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because this chapter feeds our understanding of how we got to chapter 12. It shows us again that God will not be mocked. He will be king regardless of what the people want. So I know I told you to turn to chapter 12, but turn back to chapter 8. Because I want you to follow with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second of Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." 
But the thing displeased Samuel, and when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implants of war and, to, and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfum, per, perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. In chapter 8, the people are rejecting their God. They are choosing a man over their Lord. And God will answer their request and it will eventually have drastic consequences. And this morning we, we come back to chapter 12 and we enter a courtroom. God versus the people. We will see three witnesses, Samuel, God, and the people. And then we will end the chapter with the sentence. There's many things to apply in this text and I'll try to be clear as I bring that out. But I want to pause and pray and ask God to give us understanding as we look at his word. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship by hearing your word preached. God, I ask that you would speak to your people here this morning. I pray that you would teach them. I pray that they would see and understand that you are the authority. That you are their king. And they understand your words this morning from the scriptures. And may you allow me to speak in a clear and concise way. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in chapter 12 is Samuel's testimony. If you've turned back, follow with me as I read verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom I have, have I defrauded? 
Whom have I oppressed? Or, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. The trial has begun and Samuel takes the stand first. This, this chapter marks the end of the time of the judges and the beginning of the kings. And Samuel is preaching to the people and this is his farewell sermon. He'll still be on the scene, but not in the same capacity. And Samuel stands before the people to call them to witness to his actions as prophet of God's people. And he reminds them in verse 1 of his obedience to God to give them the king that, God, that they asked for. He obeyed their voice, but really, he, he was, as we read in chapter 8, he was obeying God's voice. And, and then he moves to talk about himself in verse 2, living with them when he was young and now growing old before them. The old order is being replaced by the new order, and they need to reflect and think deeply of what's, what's transpiring now. Then he moves on to the testimony of Samuel's life. He is putting himself now in the hot seat, and he's asking them to, to weigh him, to look at him, to judge his actions, to, to evaluate his choices before them. Do you see that in verse 3? He, he walks through that. Did I, did I take any of your ox or, or donkeys? Or have I defrauded you? Have I oppressed you? And he's asking, did I steal from you? Did I, did I take? Did I, did I do these things? Did I swimble you? Have, have, have you been bribed? And the questions to me are, are very similar to what we just read in chapter 8. Did you notice that? When he gave the warning to the, to the people of what they should expect from their king, he asked the same type of questions. When Samuel describes the custom of the king, he said that the king's procedure would be to take, to take, to take, and down the line. And the question is, from Samuel, did I do this? And the answer is no. He had walked before them in life for many years, and now he's asking if his life has displayed any of those actions. He's asking them to charge him with any wrongdoing, and they can't find any. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And so the, the vindication of Samuel meant the indictment of the people. They will, soon, they will soon stand before the judge. And what's Samuel's point here? He's, he's reflecting that the old style leadership has served them well, but they're moving on to something else. Well, he's not done. The case moves on and God will take the stand in God's testimony. The second point. This is where it gets a little interesting. Samuel begins the second stage of this trial and places the judge on the stand. God is still the judge, but now Samuel would be the accuser, and the accused would be the people. And he says in verse 6, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron who, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. 
And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Baals and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Samuel is again reminding the people of all that the Lord has done for them. He continually brought them out of the hands of their enemies. He provided for them. He protected them. He remained faithful to them. And, And Samuel calls the things that God has done his righteous deeds. And these were deeds that were an expression of his faithfulness to his people, a truthfulness to his promises. He had been faithful to his relationship with Israel. And Samuel's purpose in bringing this up is to remind the people and for them to acknowledge all of God's righteous acts and that Israel was privileged to experience. And the emphasis here he he makes many times was on the leaders that God had sent them. Moses and Aaron, beginning with the Exodus and how God led them from Egypt and their forefathers, time and again, were led by God. God continued to give in the form of leaders to lead them. Can you see is what, is what Samuel's asking them. Can you see? Can you understand how, how utterly faithful and righteous God has been to you? Even when you were stubborn and sinned and the consequences of sin came, God is still faithful. As it is true for unrepented patterns of sin that lead to God's discipline of them. God is faithful in that. And they forgot God, as it says in verse 9. This isn't new for them. It's not like God hadn't warned them before. We read in Deuteronomy 8, 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Their sin would separate them from their God. And Israel's Israel's experience of being given over to the enemies was also God's righteous way of of working towards them and with them. As a parent to a child, well, what parent doesn't want to teach their children after they sin? If you never discipline your child, then you show that you truly despise them. Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the Israelites had forgotten God. They'd gone after other gods and served them and worshipped them. But God is faithful. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And he will not deny himself. And righteousness is conformity to the covenant. And, and the story that Samuel tells them demonstrates that the Lord was a covenant-keeping God. A God who will keep his promises. And God continued to use men for his glory. He lists there in verse 11. And then he ends in verse 11 that that they, after they've been protected and led by these men, that they lived in safety. The people had no reason to fear. They were safe in God's hand. They didn't have to worry about being attacked. And God, and through this, testimony is vindicated he had done all that he said he would do and that moves to the third point 
the people's testimony. The people now take the stand in the trial. Verse 12 is an interesting verse. It says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. We were introduced to Nahash last week in chapter 11, but from this verse, it seems he was already on the scene. From Samuel's words to the people, it seems that Nahash had already been threatening the people, which is what motivated their request for the king. I, I, I would wager that Nahash came into view right before the people demanded a king in chapter 8. Nahash was already probably making his threats against them. Listen to Samuel's words again. He says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Their fear of losing their safety pushed them to request a king. And it seems odd from this vantage point now for the people to ask for a man to lead them instead of God. But the author, 1 Samuel, now reveals more of what's going on, giving another angle to the way our human hearts work. You see, this time when the, when the serpent Nahash comes on the scene, they don't cry out to God. They, they don't repent of their fear and unwillingness to trust God. No, they desire a king. And in this way, as he's, he's said multiple times, this shows us that they had no longer trusted their, their Lord, their God, their rightful king any longer. They want a man to fight their battles. And Samuel reminds them of all the righteous deeds of their Lord, how he helped them, how he rescued them, how he came when they cried for help. God bailed them out, out again and again and again, and he set them up for safety, but now they choose someone else. They ask for a king. Verse 13, and now behold, the king whom we have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Look at him. A tall, good-looking young man. He's all that. He's not your Lord. He is not your God. And what kind of crazy talk is this? That you would exchange the Lord for a mere man. What kind of blind insanity would you trust a man, a human, over God? You'd rather submit to a young man than submit to a, a, a God who has proven himself to be faithful and loving time and again. I don't care how impressive he looks. I don't care how strong you think he is. I don't care that you think he can save you. He can't. And this is complete madness. No, this is complete wickedness. This is what Samuel is preaching to the people. You would choose him over God. And yet, God is still gracious. God is still patient with his people. It says in verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And the only future that they have now is to follow what the Lord says. This is the new arrangement. If both you and your king, both you and your king fear and obey me, 
they and their king must submit themselves under God's rule, God's authority. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. It was a simple choice for them. Will you and your king, the mighty, tall, strong king, submit to another kingdom or not? To put it another way, the the monarchy was brought under the covenant. If they were to place themselves under the rule and authority of God, they would experience all the blessings that would come. But if they rebelled against God, they would experience the consequences of their independence. They would be like the other nations away from God. They would miss the covenant blessings. And this is a critical moment in the history of Israel. Whose authority will they come under? Friends, whose authority are you under right now? This is an issue. This issue of authority is, is a big deal right now. I don't think it'll ever stop being a big deal. We, we live in a culture right now that says, don't let anyone tell you how to live. You are your own life's authority. It's true that in the past, in our culture, and still in many parts of the world today, most people would have the center of the gravity of their life, the authority that is outside of themselves. And your life authority is what you would determine your choices. It would determine how you live, how you act, and what you say. And what determines these choices in your life is your authority. And most people over most time would say that it was the religion or their, their family or their tradition or something outside of themselves that informs them on how to conform and how to live. But now, now in our Western culture, we are told that what we feel is now our authority. No one can tell me what my choices will be. I will determine my life's choices. But friends, it's an illusion. It's not real. If you think that you are determining how you live your life, if you really think that you are your own authority, you are wrong. You are fooled. What you're actually being controlled by is your feelings, which come from your culture, by other human beings that bring validation to your life. So really, you're not in control of your own life. You're not your own authority. Nobody is. And the reason that it's good that God be your authority for your life is because something else will be your authority. And no one will be as good and as loving and as gentle and as perfect than God. No one. For example, I have heard college students, even high school students, who say, I am my own authority. But what you really mean is, I'm living to what feels right for me. And boy, that's dangerous. You're letting your feelings dictate your life. Incoherent and unreliable feelings are now in the driver's seat of your life. And why are your feelings unreliable? Well, friends, do you remember what you were like 10 years ago? Do you remember all the stupid mistakes you made 10 years ago? Do you remember how naive you were 10 years ago? 
Do you remember how much you were a fool 10 years ago? You were, my friend. You should know that. If you deny this, you're an even bigger fool today. And anyone in this room that has had a normal adult maturing process knows that if they look back 10 years, you could say, man, I was a complete idiot 10 years ago. If you're humble and reflective, you can say that. But now look ahead. What do you think you're going to say about yourself today? You're you're today you. Man, I was a complete idiot. We're fools now. Yes, we are. We're, We're still maturing. I mean, it should slow down as we grow older. We should grow more and learn from our mistakes, but we never fully arrive. I hope that brings some hope to you. I mean, if if God allows me to become 90 or 100 years old, I will look back most likely at when I was 75 and think, man, Jeff, you were an idiot. (laughs) What were you thinking? And and the point in all of this and why I'm saying is that you cannot rely on your feelings. How can you when just a decade ago you were still growing, still changing? We need another authority. It's incoherent to say that our feelings are authority because our feelings will contradict each other. And if you say that my authority is me, what what it could mean is I'm basically doing what, what feels right to me, what my intuition tells me. And friends, that is dangerous. And what's more striking is that you're unaware how much the culture has a hold on you. You are not authority over yourself. Someone has authority. And friends, the only way, only way to live a life of peace is to be under the authority of God. Under the authority of God's word. Samuel offers this choice to the people. To place themselves back under the authority of God. But he doesn't just preach to them. He offers them a chance to see the power of God yet again before their eyes. Look at verse 16. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. And so Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. He sounds like Moses in Exodus 14 was about to part the Red Sea. This is maybe not as impressive as parting the sea, but it's still impressive. The wheat harvest was early summer when no rain fell, and a thunderstorm in this season would have been unknown. It would have completely rocked them, as we see. God is showing them who he is. He is showing them his glory. He is showing them his power. And what's the response? Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They recognized in this moment that this is a serious situation. And it must be mentioned, 
that Saul is probably in the midst of this. I can imagine the scene. It's, it's, it's not difficult to picture this young man, tall, towering over the people, now shifting his feet in awkwardness of the situation. His new position as king, something he didn't seek out. And from earlier accounts that we read, something he tried to hide from. He had now become Israel's king as a consequence of the nation's climatic evil act. That would have been really reassuring for him, wouldn't have been right then. What a way to get a possession, a position in this time. Well, the moment had come for the people to renew their commitment to God and to his kingdom, and he has shown himself yet again. He is worthy to be followed. The people are guilty. It's been proven. The evidence has been shown. They're guilty. Now, what happens? This is fourth, the verdict. Samuel responds to the people in verse 20 and 21 are only become clear when you get to verse 22. But verse 20 says, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. On what grounds would there possibly be for these people not to be afraid? What they had done, what they recognized now, asking for a king was not only stupid, it was evil, it was wicked. It was a betrayal of God. Again, what is Saul thinking as Samuel lays this out? Says there, the people shouldn't, in verse 21, turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He's, he's basically saying Saul, as their, as their savior in their minds, is an empty, pathetic substitute for God, who's their true king. And then other things, these empty things, these, this word means so much. The empty things here is a Hebrew word that was used in Genesis. Before creation, the emptiness before God created. He says it's a, it's a wasteland. These empty things are a wasteland. It's a wilderness. And he's saying this is, this is what happens when you follow a man instead of following God. It's true. Follow anything other than God and it will lead you to a wasteland. But why would Israel not need to be afraid? Verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God is faithful. He will not allow his reputation to be ruined. He is jealous for his own glory. He is, he is the only one that can be that way. His only allegiance is to his own name, and that should bring us comfort, friends. Because of his allegiance, he will do all that he says he will do. God's speaking is his doing. He's the only one that when he speaks, it will happen. Samuel continues, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. And this is what church leaders should do. We pray for the people we lead. It would be sin if we didn't. And then Samuel's last challenge to the people, verse 24 and 25, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. 
Just because they have a king over them doesn't mean all that will be well. Their first allegiance should be to God under his authority. In fact, things will get even more difficult with a king over them. The people will need to decide each and every day to follow the Lord first over any earthly king that might take them down a road to sin. And he says, be aware though, if you reject God, they'll be swept away. We need to wrap things up, but I need to ask, what, what can we learn from this chapter? We learn that God is our only king. This book is showing us the kingdom of God, but he isn't only the king, he's the author. And because he is the author, he has complete authority for our lives. C.S. Lewis was quoted by saying, when the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered into your head to conceive, and it comes crashing in? something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others. It will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror in every creature. It'll be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Not today, or excuse me, now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. Friends, we're another day closer to seeing God. And God is the author of it all. That's why he can speak with authority to us. All of you have been students before at some point. Some of you are still in that process. Some of you students will go back to class tomorrow. You guys have school tomorrow? You still awake? And you're in class, okay? Picture with me, you're in class, and there with your classmates sitting around, you're discussing a book, discussing an assignment or a theory, and everyone has an opinion on this. And then the, the teacher pipes in to kind of direct the class and what's being discussed and what's being thought through. But what if the author of the book that you're studying suddenly walks into the class opens the book and says, I wrote this 30 years ago, and this is what it means. That's the end of the discussion, right? He has complete authority. The word authority comes from the word author. And when the author speaks, nobody has anything else left to say. You can't pipe up and say, no, that's not what it means. You're an idiot if you do that. He's the author. He knows exactly what he meant when he wrote it. And we can't question it. Friends, Jesus Christ is the author of your life. He is your rightful king. Who are you going to believe? How are you going to decide how you live? Are you going to run to a new standard for how you live? Are you going to be one of those people who says, no one has the right to tell me what to do with my life. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my body. That's, that's my right. It's my authority. 
Don't you see what you're doing? You're making yourself the authority. You're making yourself the author of your life. And it's not true. You're not the author. God is. Did you make yourself? Did you create yourself? Did you fashion yourself out of dust? Everybody has an opinion on their life, just like everyone else in this room. But when the author walks in and says, no, I built you for this. I gave you life. I gave you air to breathe. I gave your lungs the ability to work and make your heart pump. I did this. And your life will only work this way as you submit to me. If you live under my kingship, all other kingships will fail you. You need to submit under me. And the teachers, they step aside and they point to the author who walks in. And in the same way, the earthly king should only point to the true king in this world. The same for all preachers. We only point to Jesus. I'm a nobody who loves to talk about a somebody. Why should you choose to submit to this king? Why him? Because this king became a man. God installed a man to be king over his people, but that would only serve a temporary purpose. In giving Israel a human king, God did not change his mind about only God being the rightful king of Israel. The point is that God alone is the king of Israel, and there is a coming king, a son of David, who will not fail like the others. He will not just another sinful man. He will be a, a God man. And only God could be the rightful king of Israel. There would need, need to be a human king, one that was perfect, one that could rule the right and holy way. And this king would have to die for his people. And God can't die. Only a man can die. So God planned that not only God would be the rightful king of his people, but the rightful king must die in the place of the people. And where would this happen? This would happen on the cross. Our king was cursed upon a tree that he spoke into being. Our king would die for our rebellion. On this day in 1 Samuel 12, when the people deserved to die for rejecting their God and king, he gave them mercy. For his name's sake. But you can't sweep sin under the rug of the universe and still uphold your name as a righteous and holy God. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. And it was when Jesus died. And he died for your sins, my non-Christian friends that are here this morning. He died for us. I'm going to read that quote from C.S. Lewis here as I end. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. And God is going to evade, all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered into your mind to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. And now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. And God is holding back to give us that chance. 
And friends, it won't last forever. Today is the day of salvation. And I pray that today you will turn from your sinful rebellion of God and submit under him as your rightful king. That you would trust in this king. That you would understand he has the power to save you and the power to transform your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word that shows us, shows us exactly who we are. It shows us our desperate need for you. It reminds us time and again that we are not our own authority. That there is a standard for life. And you are the one that set the standard. Father, I pray that through your word this morning, that you would speak to your people. Those that are caught in sin, I pray that they would understand that you would make them fully aware of their wickedness and that you would bring brokenness and contriteness allow them to feel the weight of guilt and that they can then come and confess that to you. And we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us. And God, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that have never turned to you. They still believe that they're their own authority. But they're not. They have been fooled into thinking that they are. God, I ask that you would lift their blindness, that you would give them eyes to see and faith to believe that you are the only way, and that you would bring about repentance, turning away of sin and turning to you. And may they trust in you alone. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.